program tonight, country music's newfound power. Brad Paisley takes on the opioid epidemic in rural America. Where I'm from has been under attack. Can rural values solve the nation's problems? We'll try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Oprah in office. Voting rights are being gutted. Women's rights are being dismantled. Books are being banned. History is being rewritten. How about Meghan Markle? or Michelle Obama on her way to a 2024 presidential run. We break down the possibilities to replace California Senator Dianne Feinstein. A man and his gator. I'm big into reptiles, and Wally just became really, really close to me. Wally, the emotional support alligator, became national news when he got turned away by the Philadelphia Phillies. Wally and his owner join us to explain. Is he house trained? Oh, they go in their water. They go in the pond. I have a 300 gallon pond in my living room. Wonder drug for thee, but not for me. Oh. 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 It solves obesity. Obesity kills. Why America's rich and famous get Ozempic, but you don't. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television as we head into the weekend first tonight. The new political movement defined by country music. We've been telling you for a while about the urban-rural divide in America. Country music, of course, speaks to the rural way of dealing with life, even if you live in the city. And Brad Paisley is out with a new song about the opioid crisis. Four in ten adults in rural communities say they or someone in their family have been addicted to opioids, including prescription painkillers and illegal drugs like heroin. For context, it's one in four, roughly half for people living in urban communities. It is crushing Appalachia. Opioids in other rural areas in Appalachia are the forgotten issue of American politics. Western Pennsylvania, rural Michigan and Wisconsin, parts of North Carolina and Arizona, perhaps Georgia, will decide the presidential election. In those states, opioid overdose is the leading cause of death for people between 18 and 44. We've had so many family members and stuff die in just the past little while that it's unreal. I've been in treatment multiple times. I've, I've tried to, to get this right since I was like 19 years old. I didn't even have to ingest it. Like, real quick, it could be in my hand and I instantly felt better. How really? how, how powerful that grip was. The opioid crisis in country music, the opioid crisis is described in country music, is far different than the one we see and have shown you pictures of in Skid Row in Philadelphia or San Francisco. That's the opioid crisis you hear about, the junkies in New York's new plan to hand out the overdose reverser, Narcan, or safe injection sites. But in Appalachia, it's very different. There's no way to escape it. It affects everyone, people at church, people at the grocery store, people at work. And it affects people from every walk of life. The medicine will, which is the the way that we have dealt with the fact that this is the epicenter of the opioid crisis. Where I'm from has been under attack. 
I said in Appalachia, it affects everyone, people from all walks of life. It also kills people from all walks of life in Appalachia. As we've shown you, rural America feels under attack in general. You perhaps link it all the way back to President Obama's line about bitter people clinging to their guns and religion. So it's no surprise that people have fought back every way they know how, including with music. For example, Jason Aldean's Try That in a Small Town. Try that in a small town. You might remember a month or two ago, the coastal elites branded that song racist. Rural America made it number one on the charts, not just the country charts, but it became the most played song in America. Politicians would be wise to take note, politicians of both parties. Rural America, as defined by country music, is fighting back. Kurt Bardell is here, Democratic political strategist, country music aficionado, and author of Country Music's Must Read Morning Newsletter. It's good to see you. Uh, Andrew Breitbart famously said that politics is downstream of culture. What is, what is the country music culture telling us about politics in America? I think that's telling us that there's just a very, very big disconnect, Leland, between how the elites in D.C., New York, L.A., perceive problems like the opioid crisis uh, and, and what it actually feels like in real small towns, rural America. Because as you pointed out in your intro, it's very different in Appalachia in West Virginia than it is in an urban area in Detroit or Philadelphia or New York. Uh, and that's what's so powerful, I think, about Brad's song here and the video elements to it, uh, which he filmed you know, literally in the coal mines of West Virginia on location uh, and, and bringing to life what it looks like when an entire small town community is absolutely decimated by a crisis like this. And it looks very different presentation-wise than anything that we have seen so far and how people talk about this crisis. And that's what the beauty of country music is. That's the beauty of the storytelling that we see from people like Brad Paisley, uh, that they're able to elevate the conversation and, and hit it home in a way that cuts through a lot of the political BS we see day in and day out. Yeah, there, there's something, though, about country music that now is resonating outside of rural America, right? It's rural values into suburban America in, in a representation. And that, that feels to me like a big change from when I was a young kid growing up on country music. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we always talk about how if you want to change hearts and minds, you have to meet people where they actually are. And if you're going to try to get people to understand a different perspective, a different way of life, art, music, this is the way to do that. This is what's so powerful about the type of presentation we're seeing from Brad Paisley and, and these you know, first three songs that were released today for, for his upcoming album, Some of the Mountains, yeah. that it, it is taking it outside of Appalachia so that everybody can see wherever you live, this is what the lived experience is like for these people right now. And on some level, when you see their pain and you see their truth and you see in that video the anecdotes from real life victims of the opioid crisis. It hits home. It's something that we can all universally relate to. Yeah, the 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 most famous singer in America right now was a country singer. Is no longer. I'm of course talking about Taylor Swift. 385 million followers across all our social media platforms. Are we being clear headed enough in Washington uh, about how influential? These cultural figures, whether it be country music or Taylor Swift, who sort of has now transcended country music just into music, how influential these figures are in American politics? Uh, I, you know, I think it's interesting because for so long, 
when we have that conversation about influencers and celebrity and culture, oftentimes we think about you know the, the lefty activists really in all ways. But here we're seeing the rise really, Taylor notwithstanding, of, of what I think are the blue collar activists, the blue collar influencers and people like whether it's a Brad Paisley or even most recently the Oliver Anthony, you know, Richmond for Richmond thing. Like that, like that, that's something that happened very organically. Also, like the Aldean song, became the number one song in America, not just in country music, in America, on the Billboard uh, Hot 200 chart. Like, that tells you that there's something get that's you, being tapped into. I want to get you bigger. on this because you, you may have brought us to the intersection, right, which is a, a group of people who feel forgotten. Um, both by the left and the right, sort of that that if you go to Appalachia, they will tell you that, right? That that politicians from neither side speak to them. That's what a lot of these songs have talked about. It's, it, rich, rich men north of Richmond, uh, try that in a small town, and now Brad Paisley's piece. Um, that was what RFK talked about today. Uh, looks like he's going to announce on October 9th an independent run for president. Take a listen. We're going to have to rewrite the assumptions and change the habits of American politics. We're going to tap into a mighty surge of people power to reclaim an honest, peaceful, just, and prosperous America. We're going to look back on this as sort of the wild card that came into the 2024 presidential race? Uh, it remains to be seen. I think that RFK, you know, he's such an interesting cat, right? This is a guy who started as a Democrat, you know, has the most famous last name perhaps in Democratic political history, um, but still aligned at times with figures like a Steve Bannon and a Roger Stone and a Tucker Carlson. Now he's running as an independent instead of a Democrat. This is someone who, while he was running as a Democrat, had higher approval ratings with Republicans than with Democrats. So it's like, I don't even know what to make of that. Is there a there there that there are people on both sides throughout this country who feel left behind, who do not feel seen, who right now are not being spoken to by the current list of people that are running for president? Absolutely there is. There's no doubt about that. Is RFK going to be the guy that's going to tap into that successfully? I have my doubts, but we'll see how it plays out. All right. Well, uh, RFK supporters, country music fans, there is a correlation there. Um, Kurt, it's good to see you as always, my friend. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend out in California. Speaking of California, Tonight's edition of Newsom Watch, the non-presidential candidate, presidential candidate Gavin Newsom finds himself, you might say, in a bit of a crisis. We know that represents danger and opportunity, both for the California government, governor and Democrats at all. Longtime California Senator Dianne Feinstein died overnight in Washington, leaving a vacancy in the Senate that Newsom gets to fill. And in the past, he's promised to replace Feinstein with an African-American woman, leaving four very well-known national figures as possibilities. Michelle Obama, Oprah, Kamala Harris, and not to be left out, because she has talked about political aspirations in the past, is Meghan Markle. God help us all. Former Biden campaign surrogate Kevin Walling is with us now. On a serious note here, I have to think that there were a lot of Democrats right now who are secretly hoping hoping. You don't have to say it. Secretly hoping that <laughs> you're it's going to get me in trouble. You're going to get me in trouble, Leland. You don't have to say it. You, your smile said everything. Uh, I'm sure Maybe that's, you're not. Maybe you're not. I'm but not. There are, but hey. there are Democrats who are talking about Kamala Harris. I, th- I think the only people really talking about it are folks on the right that that uh, want to you know placate and, and and put up this kind of divide between the president uh, and his running mate who successfully toppled Donald Trump. I think you know the greatest indication of the team uh, together is what they did just three years ago. Okay. Uh, and then there was the smile. But uh, look, I'm look, with you. I'm as, always smiling. As we look at this, okay, you got you got Oprah, 
you got Meghan Markle, you got Michelle Obama, possibly, um, although not a California resident, I don't think. Does Gavin Newsom get something by going way outside the box here? Who could be mad at him if he appointed Oprah? Hey, it's a good point. Listen, you know, you've got so many political factions. You've got L.A. versus San Francisco in terms of political bases. Leland, your point, he's already indicated he's going to appoint a black uh, woman to that uh, fill that vacancy. He's not interested in someone running for that seat after the fact. He's interested in a lame duck. So I say, to your point, go outside the box. Don't take off any of your political factions in state. Go with an Oprah. That would be great. Yeah, um, Barbara Lee. Uh, I'm troubled by the governor's remarks saying that he's going to only appoint a caretaker, doesn't want to get involved in the primary. The idea that a black woman should be appointed only as a caretaker to simply check a box is insulting to countless black women across this country who've carried the Democratic Party to victory election after election. Uh, man, he can't get Gavin Newsom can't catch a break. He can't catch a break. And she wants that appointment, obviously, because she's one of those top three contenders uh, come uh, the primary next uh, next March. All right. So if Newsom is going to end up running for president, who does he appoint? Who, who does he get the most out of? Uh, I mean, I, you're highlighting a good partnership with Oprah. I mean, uh, she, you know, he, Gavin could be one of her favorite things. Not uh, Meghan Markle, though. Not Meghan Markle. No. Uh, I don't think that's a winning strategy. Other- Although she's indicated that she wants, she's interested in political life down the road. Yeah. Any other names? Uh, my my out of the box uh, theory is he should appoint Hunter Biden. Hunter's now a resident of California. He's living in Malibu. What better way to stick it to House Republicans than to put <laughs> Hunter Biden in the United States Senate for this year? And also to stick it to Joe Biden, too, right? <laughs> well, we'll see if he votes with his, with his dad, the president. That would be the way he would stick it to him. Yeah, but if Gavin Newsom appoints Hunter Biden, it just makes Hunter Biden like this, this huge issue in Washington. Look, <laughs> I guess Gavin, that's if, true. If Gavin, I guess that's if true. If Gavin Newsom wants to run for president, that's, that's quite the Machiavellian move. <laughs> it could be. Although he's been a very loyal soldier to this president, as we Gavin, saw just yeah, in, the, in the debate recaps. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people who are loyal soldiers uh, just— as long as they need as long as it's politically viable we've well, seen is, is, history of that until they're not it's exactly that's, Lately, that's what washington's about good to see you brother despite what you hear on other networks we have a prediction for you the sun is going to rise tomorrow in fact it's going to rise in the east normally we wouldn't have to say that but in light of news coming about the government shutdown from other networks we just thought we'd reinforce the idea Republicans in the House cannot get their act together, nor can they agree with each other, much less strike a deal with Democrats. So here we go into a government shutdown. But it's hard to know who is more excited, the Democrats who get to blame Republicans for the shutdown or the reporters who get to cover it. Millions of government workers, including military families and Border Patrol officers, now bracing for a shutdown, their paychecks at stake here. Laredo is the number one port of entry in the United States, and the shutdown can impact us locally and the supply chains to all the United States. So it's a significant uh, situation for those families uh, who desperately want to take care of their children, desperately want to provide nutritious food, but won't be able to do so because the WIC program will stop. And so the longer this goes, the deeper the impact and the consequences that you're going to see sweeping the nation. And there's no part of this nation that will not be affected by this. Don't worry. We understand the Biden administration is doing their best to make sure all Americans feel the pain. For example, they're closing national parks across the country. They don't have to close them. Trump, in fact, kept them open during the last shutdown. But it does help the media make the point. 
It is highly likely that if air traffic controllers have to go several paychecks without a paycheck, you'll start to see them calling out sick. That's what happened in 2019, and that led to a dramatic slowdown of the nation's airports and airspace. Hmm. The drama and the likelihood. It's not highly likely that the shutdown could easily be over. Who knows? It could easily be over before the next pay period. It would make all of the MSNBC reporting completely moot. But you can tell MSNBC wishes the shutdown would last forever. The longer it lasts, the longer they can report on evil Republicans. Missing, of course, from everything we've shown you is the simple fact that government employees will get paid in full once the government reopens. Is it pleasant? No. Should the military have to go without pay? Absolutely not. It is shameful. Really. We can do better in America. But there's another thing that will be missing from the reporting this weekend that you will see. While the Biden administration makes America's troops go without pay, money to pay Ukraine's first responders and weapons to Ukraine, aid to Ukraine, will keep flowing. Just a few things to keep in mind this weekend. Coming up, Philly's ballpark denies entry to a fan with his emotional support pet. To be fair, he wanted to bring in an alligator. Yeah, you heard it right. The gator's next to explain. He get time out. He does get in trouble when he doesn't listen. And still ahead, Chris Cuomo tells us why billionaire Elon Musk is the left's public enemy number one. He had the U.S. government and the Ukrainians at gunpoint. if he had a permit for Wally. You might have heard of Wally. Wally is the emotional support alligator that walks on a leash and gives hugs. I'm actually serious about this. Wally became national news earlier this week when he got turned away at Philadelphia Phillies ballpark. That situation has gotten cleared up, but we figured we needed to learn a little bit more about Wally. Kind of the responses you get when you walk around with Wally are people people sort of surprised at some level. Well, they're surprised, but they're anxious to meet him. Uh, Wally is world famous, and most areas everybody who's known or heard of Wally, and they're always exciting to meet excited to meet him. So when they see us, they want to they'll say, "Can I go up petting? Can I can I get a hug? Can I get a kiss from him?" Uh, so then we permit it to happen. How, how big is he? He's six feet. So he's six feet. I know you've trained him to keep his mouth closed when he's around people. He likes scratches under the chin. How is it that you decided, and I I know he helps with your depression and other things, how is it that you decided to have him have an alligator as a support animal rather than a a dog or a horse or something else? Well, if I had anything with it, it would be a a venomous snake. I'm into reptiles. I'm not a huge dog person myself. I like all animals. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, I mean, I, I just, I love all animals, but I'm, I'm big into reptiles and Wally just became really, really close to me because I had never thought in ever would happen to have an, uh, an alligator as an emotional support animal. And he's tremendous so you, at what he does. Yeah, no, tell me, tell me about what he does and how you've trained him to do it. I mean, I understand how to train a dog. Is it the same way to train a, an alligator? As far as emotional support, or train him as how? Anything. 
Oh, well, actually, they're they're a lot more intelligent than a dog. Uh, he, they learn their name a lot quicker. They respond to their name. Uh, it don't take long to teach them how to lay down and stay. Uh, but at the same time, their age is the same as our age, and he's eight years old. He listens like an eight-year-old child. Uh, you take your eyes off him, he thinks he can sneak and get away with things. Uh, he does get time out. He does get in trouble when he doesn't listen. Uh, but other than that, yeah, he, he listens pre- you know, pretty good for an eight-year-old. I, I get I get an eight year old. I mean, do you worry when he's like a teenager? And then I, I mean, obviously he still has his teeth and um, whatever instincts he he came with, sort of from from nature. Do you, you worry? That he's yeah, he still got teeth. Sometimes at some point. <laughs> okay. Okay. He's definitely still he's definitely still has his teeth. Uh, do you not worry that at some point he might get angry or snap or something like that? Or how, how do you how do you make sure that doesn't happen and to be able to bring him around folks and bring him to a ballpark or something like that? There's never a 100% guarantee on anything. I don't care if it's a service dog, service, whatever, uh, a pet, whatever. Uh, There's never a 100% guarantee. I do work with Wally. I test him all the time. So I know we've not found anything that makes him mad and gets him really angry. Do I fully trust him? I I do. Uh, But I respect Animals. Uh, well, you, I, 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 hear, more than I hear. I hear he sleeps in. He sleeps in bed with you, and he's just part of the house. He does. Is he house trained. Oh, they go in their water. They go in the pond. I have a three hundred gallon pond in my living room. Well, I used to. Right now, we're staying at a friend's house. But I used to have a three hundred gallon pond in my living room. Oh yeah, he sleeps with me. Watches TV on the couch. Do you have any favorite shows? He does. Lion King. If you start the music to Lion King, he ends up somewhere around the TVs, and he will not move till it's over. And the second one is uh, Gladiator. He loved Gladiator. I don't know why, but yeah. I could think of a couple of reasons, but uh, <laughs> that's remarkable. <laughs> hey, this is a lot of fun. Um, we wish you and Wally safe travels. Uh, we'll follow you guys on Instagram and TikTok, where you've got uh, quite the following already. Um, and and we, we, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you. We'll, we'll keep following Wally's travels. Karen Pence is out with a new book. It's called When Your Time to Serve. And she joins us now. Ma'am, nice to see you. Nice to see uh, you, I'll- Leland. In the spirit of uh, Christianity and confession, I will tell you, I didn't get a chance to read the book. I got engaged over the weekend, so was um, a little preoccupied. Thank you. That's great. Thank you very much. So I was a little preoccupied. What's going to surprise people the most when they uh, when they read it? You know, honestly, this is a very upbeat, uh, positive, encouraging book. Uh, And most of the books that we see these days are kind of tearing everybody apart and trashing other people. And I just really wanted to do a book that would uh, encourage the reader to be willing to step up when they feel called to serve. There are so many ways that I've been able to serve over the years, and uh, it's been such a privilege. But if I had said no, I don't want to serve, I don't want to step up, there would have been so many things that I would have missed out on. So we tell a lot of uh, kind of behind-the-scenes stories uh, about things going on and and things that were going on in our family and maybe at the White House and the governor's residence 
sense, but just giving people a good idea of, mm. um, you know, what it was like to serve. So um, I hope people right. enjoy it. I hope it encourages the reader. Well, I will say uh, I appreciate as you as a former uh, teacher accepting my excuse for not doing my homework. This came up during our town hall. Um, I don't know if it came up in Iowa, but certainly come up in the town hall. And in the the topic of your marriage and your faith has been uh, the subject of a lot of interest. It's been the subject of a lot of a lot of criticism. Um, and I'm wondering how you tackle that in the book and why you think that has been such an issue. Um, well, you know, one of the things I I've tried to do in in the book is to uh, talk a lot about. Um, my faith and how we've made decisions along the way. And so there are a lot of little stories that we kind of share how we've made decisions relying on our faith. And one of the things I encourage the reader to do is to not be afraid if you feel that calling to go ahead and step out. Um, I don't know why our faith in particular, or our marriage would be under so much scrutiny. Um, but, uh, but it has been, and but that's okay. I mean, that that's what politics is. When you're in the public life, you just have to be yeah. willing to accept that. But one of the things I try and encourage the reader to do is is to try and figure out maybe how they feel like God is calling them. For us, Leland, when we've had to make those decisions, like whether or not to run for Congress a third time, whether or not to uh, run for president this time, when we've made those decisions, we've we've looked to the Bible, we've asked friends to pray with us and for us. But once you make that decision, you just have a sense of peace uh, that kind of, you know, comes over you. I mean, maybe you feel that after having just gotten engaged, that now you're engaged. I hope that's what you're feeling. Um, uh, joy, you know, now you have happiness. peace. The, the, well... <laughs> Um, we could all be optimistic, right? Um, well, I would have a peace, happiness, excitement, maybe, may, maybe more there. A little nerves. Um, I'm not sure peace would be the right word. But I, I appreciate the optimism, ma'am. It is good to see you. Thank you. Um, it's great to see you. We'll see you on the trail again. Great. Thanks, Leland. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the book. We have one of the biggest tools to stop the deaths of millions of Americans each year. So why America's elite won't push to get the drug insured and into the hands of all Americans who need it? Why are they keeping Ozempic for themselves when we come back? the Ozempic commercial we see all the time on television. As you heard, on average, adults lost up to 12 pounds on Ozempic. Doctors say the invention of Ozempic is up there with penicillin in its ability to save lives, to change medicine. But its cost puts it out of reach for all but the richest of Americans. And the Atlantic, otherwise known as the liberal Bible, a must-read in the Hamptons, Palm Beach, Miami, Los Angeles... They want to keep it that way. They write, could Ozempic derail the body positivity movement? The medical miracle could reverse our progress on accepting bodies of all sizes. In other words, we in the Hamptons in L.A. can afford Ozempic, but the rest of America should just be happy being fat. Never mind that obesity is one of the top killers in America. The toll from being overweight includes increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, and certain cancers. A study from the Journal of Population Studies estimates that about one in six 
U.S. deaths. One in six are related to excess weight or obesity. The study says existing studies have likely underestimated the mortality consequences of living in a country where cheap, unhealthy food has grown increasingly accessible, sedentary lifestyles have become the norm. It's far worse in poor and minority communities. A third of Americans are overweight. Another 35% are obese. So this is not a trivial question we're dealing with. Ozempic is proven to help Americans lose weight by making you feel full. If Medicare and private insurance companies paid for weight loss drugs like Ozempic, it would save the country nearly $1.5 trillion over the next 30 years because people on weight loss drugs would have lower BMIs. Lower BMIs is directly correlated with fewer doctor's visits, hospitalizations, fewer weight loss surgeries, fewer heart attacks. The list goes on and on and on. With insurance, it can cost as little as $19 a month. But look at this huge difference. Without insurance, it's $900 plus a month. And there appears to be zero pressure by the political class in America on the insurance companies to cover this life-saving drug. With us now, pediatrician, assistant professor at LSU Health Sciences Center, Dr. Corey Abair. Doc, it's good to see you, um, as always. Is, is there a, a missed opportunity here with Ozempic and Wagovi to force insurers to cover it and offer this huge hope to millions of Americans? There is, and I'll tell you why. There's several reasons that are going through my head right now as to why we can't do it. First of all, the medicine is actually um, prescribed for people with diabetes. And I think what they were thinking is that if they just said everybody could have it, there would be a huge shortage. I think that's one big thing. But in the same way they, they can say that, we also know that the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that any child over the age of 12 that has some type of uh, medical issue with obesity should be able to take a medicine for their weight loss as well as we know that people across the United States are getting all types of great response from Ozempic. They're losing lots of weight. And we have studies now to show that not only are they losing weight, they are actually having a decrease in heart disease. So, I mean, this is a really big deal. It kind of weighs on both sides, but you kind of got to lean to the side of saying we need to get this done for everyone. Yeah, I, I just think about the insurance lobby and how powerful they are. You got the pharma lobby that obviously wants to keep prices high. The insurance lobby, uh, insurance companies won't cover anything uh, that they don't absolutely have to. Obesity demographics by race, black and Hispanic, uh, is seven to ten points higher than whites. Obviously, Asians is much lower. Uh, obesity has tripled over the last 60 years in the United States. Seven in ten Americans obese or overweight. This is a game changer, and I, I just can't help but think that the insurance companies are sitting there going, uh, in, in the way it could save so many people's lives, it could also cost the insurance companies an arm and a leg. Why don't you think politicians are talking about this more? You know, I think pharma has a huge key role in, in, in developing new medicines. But they also have a lot of money and they have a lot of politicians, you know, kind of in their pockets. And they really don't think that at this point they would stand to make as much money. Now, I tend to disagree because when you start looking at the actuarial tables here and you start looking at the amount of money that is spent on someone who gets diabetes at 30 years of age and then still starts to have all these other complications, then it becomes a major issue that they're going to spend so much money on later. So it's like, pay me now or pay me later. But if you pay me early, you pay me less. So it's kind of hard to see why. Yeah, I no, I, I, it's, it's mind. 
It's mind-boggling to me that we're not hearing more from the administration, an administration that talks so much uh, about uh, impoverished communities, about minority communities, about prescription drug costs, on and on and on. The Atlantic, which is sort of, you know, the... the, the North Star, if you will, for political elite in Washington. Um, sure. Could Ozempic derail the body positivity movement? The medical miracle could reverse our progress on accepting bodies of all sizes. I know this is something you've talked about a lot. At the same time, you've got these the, sort of the intellectual elite saying that this thing that can save lives and, and help so many people, oh, well, it's going to make people feel uh, as though, you know, they they shouldn't be fat anymore. I just don't get it. Yeah, it, it, it's it's counterintuitive. And I think what we did was we kind of went uh, swung the pendulum way in the wrong direction by saying, you know, I think, you know, if you're overweight, it's OK. I don't think it's OK. And this system really cannot sustain it. I mean, we're going to triple our, our numbers of diabetes in the next uh, 20 to 30 years. It can't be sustained. So not only is it something that can help someone, you know, get through this whole thing of having the obesity problem that they may have, and it, it's easier, but also it will save money and save dollars so that people can, can yeah. you know, we can do more things for more people. I mean, it, it's, it's, it makes no sense. Yeah, for I, I, I just think about, I think about the Atlantic. Yeah, I think about the Atlantic crew and Hannah Rossin, who wrote the article. It's like, wait a second here. Uh, you're you're being read by all the people in the Hamptons and uh, up in New York and down in Palm Beach and out in L.A. who can afford to take these drugs and pay out of pocket. Sure. Uh, the rest of America that can't could be helped so much by them. And you're telling them, oh, don't worry, just be OK with being fat. It's it's unbelievable to me. All right. It's, Doc, it's always good to see you. Thank you very hey, much. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It's only a matter of time. that They cannot fight for too long, much more, much longer. Yeah, you, you hope so, that eventually the insurance companies are going to be forced to, to cover this and the people like The Atlantic will just uh, accept it and let the rest of us have what they already do. Good to see you, sir. Thank Absolutely. you. You too. Thank you. A creator, an innovator, he made electric cars cool. How, he, how Elon Musk went from progressive elite hero to zero in just one tweet. Elon Musk says he is all about free speech, but it turns out he's all about free speech when it's nice to him and about him. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, so Elon Musk was at the border last night. His newfound interest in politics and America's culture has earned him Trump-like treatment from the America's left. Remember, America's left used to love Elon Musk. Now they hate him. His companies face multiple investigations, Neuralink, SpaceX, Tesla, and X, Twitter. Investigations in all of them. There's an investigation and a lawsuit against SpaceX for not hiring enough immigrants. Just so we understand this, that the... White House cannot figure out how to deal with the issues at the border right now in America. 
but they can figure out how to investigate Elon Musk. And there's a reason for that, as explained by so many in the advocacy media attacking Elon Musk. Now, the proliferation, excuse me, of hate speech on the platform is obvious to anyone who uses it. Anyone except, it seems, for Elon Musk. He lives in a right-wing bubble, one where grievances of the anti-wokeism and MAGA warriors are real and opening the floodgates for the return of fascist trolls. Elon Musk says, wow, this is about free speech. It seems to me that it's about free speech of straight white men. Okay, so we can all agree Elon Musk has changed a little bit. He's certainly become more involved in politics. He, after all, did wear his cowboy hat backwards when he visited the border. All that said, he was the guy who came up with electric cars. It was the the complete imprimatur of your progressiveness to drive a Tesla for so long. And now, suddenly, liberals are selling their Teslas because they don't want to be associated with Elon Musk. From AOC, who also drives a Tesla. What's funny about this photo, the House is holding important votes in D.C. tonight. People are scrambling to avoid a shutdown. But this Republican congressman decided to skip town and joyride with a billionaire when his own party has just a single-digit margin and needs his vote. Mehdi Hassan, why does the world's richest businessman sound like a MAGA bot spewing out automated right-wing talking points? Which is odd because Elon Musk is far from a right-winger when you listen to what he has to say. Chris Cuomo is with us uh, a little bit later in the show. He's coming up, uh, of course, at the top of the hour. After the break, we asked, you answered your reactions to some of the biggest stories of the week, including why the violence in Philly and the beating video we showed you in Chicago got so little coverage. Plus, what work from home, yes, it's a thing for some, what that really means when we come back. Congress is still working here in D.C. on a Friday night, so you know something must be up. The clock's ticking to avoid a government shutdown uh, that could, as we told you, uh, at least uh, make things inconvenient. Uh, Perhaps the people who are going to get hurt the worst are the ones who protect us, that is, the U.S. military who could go without pay, at least during the shutdown, and then they get uh, trued up when the government reopens. Joe Khalil has more on that. The bill is not passed. With another failed vote in the House on a temporary government spending measure, the Congress and the country now bracing for what seems like an inevitable government shutdown. I don't want a government shutdown. Food safety will be in essence in jeopardy. Law enforcement will not be paid. Unless Congress comes together on a solution, the government will shut down Saturday at midnight. Critical services like SNAP and welfare benefits for low-income families will likely stop going out. Federal employees like TSA and border agents will have to continue working without a paycheck. And because Congress failed to pass a bill funding the Department of Defense, active-duty military members will have to go without pay as well. Tens of thousands more federal employees could be furloughed. People are really worried about just keeping up their day-to-day expenses um, when they're not getting a paycheck. Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin says her constituents in Michigan worry about making ends meet if a shutdown goes from days to weeks. She says Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a choice to make. Does he want to do what's the right thing for the country, for real people, 
or does he want to just save his own skin and save his own job by being beholden to 15 or 16 extreme members of his own party? Much of the disagreement that's led Congress to the brink is between House Republicans themselves, the party failing to agree on spending levels, the more conservative wing, the Freedom Caucus, refusing to support anything short of 100 percent of their demands. The dispute leaving the party split, frustrating some Republicans like Dan Crenshaw. When you don't play as a team and you don't make your demands clear ahead of time, like we wanted to do with the border, you're you're just going to lose. And so they made us lose. It's like they wanted us to lose. The Senate has its own version of a temporary spending bill that House Republican leaders refuse to bring up for a vote. Would you sit here and ask me the question, why don't I surrender and just go with the Senate and ignore the problem? Is that the question you would ask? I pledged in taking this job to change Washington, to stand up for the American public. An animated Speaker McCarthy argued the Senate's bill doesn't cut enough spending, nor does it have enough border security. Neither side of the Capitol blinking, the stalemate plunging the country closer to a shutdown. Hmm. All right. That was Joe Khalil reporting. The showdown on Capitol Hill, the negotiations continue. So this is now Friday. Congratulations, we have all made it. Time for your take on the week's news. And we got a lot of responses from you about our segment over the past couple of nights about the lack of a moral compass among black urban youth in America. And in many cases, as we showed you with video, just a complete lack of regard for human life. But if chasing down someone on a bike and hitting them with a car isn't a hate crime, what is? If randomly beating someone in broad daylight after you rob them isn't a hate crime, what is? Once people feel it's okay to loot, once the culture tells them there are no consequences for stealing or for anything else because of past wrongs, well then, pushing people in front of subway cars, which is now the going thing in New York City, is not that big of a stretch. Chasing them down in cars becomes sport. All right, so Elaine Brin from Austin writes, thank you, you're the only reporter who will call a hate crime a hate crime when it's black, brown beating or killing a white person. All those champion no penalties for crime, defunding the police and progressive criminal justice have been proven wrong. All right, Elaine, thank you very much. They don't seem yet to think they are wrong, but that can perhaps be because they care more about their political careers and financial enrichment than they do about the black and brown communities they purport to represent. JR weighed in about our segment here about it taking two years for the U.S. Space Force to get new uniforms. We are the United States of America, he writes to at Leland Vitter. We can multitask, supply uniforms to Space Force, and build supersonic missiles. You sound so negative about our country. Actually, JR, when you think about it, I'm incredibly positive.